All right. With all that in mind and out of the way, let's turn to Genesis chapter 41. It has been a, a, a great, great um, opportunity for us as we've been studying the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, and, his, and, and specifically his life. What we've seen since chapter 37, we've seen a lot of connections to Jesus because Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it just practically on every page of, of the last portion of, of the book of Genesis. But I want to get you to focus on, on something that I think will help us to understand this life better. And that is that we not look at the life of Joseph from, from more of the human perspective, but that we look at it through an eternal perspective, a perspective of faith. If you will, that we will look at it from God's perspective. How God wants us to see things. This is how we're to deal with life. This is really how we're to deal with the struggles of life. And the trials that we go through. The Lord never said that we wouldn't go through trials. As a matter of fact, He said that we would go through trials, especially as believers in Jesus Christ. But all along, He said and He promised that He would be with us through those trials. He's never left us alone when we faced a, a, a storm in life or, a, or, or some kind of a, of a number overwhelming uh, uh, experience he said I'll be with you I will be with you because of who I am so when we look at the life of Joseph we think at least from a human perspective we say man this guy's had it rough 17 years old and he's already hated by his whole family his brothers They hate him because he reveals to them a couple of dreams that uh, <laughs> maybe on the outside we would say he was being a little bit arrogant about it, but no, he, he was revealing two dreams to them that was in fact, uh, that were in fact uh, dreams that God gave him. And I'm confident that he gave them those dreams to share with them. To say that sometime in the, in the very near future, you are going to see this take place. Whereas a family, you're going to come and bow before Joseph. But not in Hebron, not in the land of Canaan, but in Egypt. But how's all that going to come about? Seventeen years old and his brothers hate him enough to kill him. But a couple of the brothers talk everybody out of that, and so they, after they had thrown him into a pit, they did a consultation, and they decided, let's sell him. So they sold him to these Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt, and they would in turn sell Joseph to the Egyptians, and in particular to the captain of the guard named Potiphar. And Joseph, as we've learned also, has been one who goes through a number of Wardrobe changes, not malfunctions, changes. I take that back, there was one malfunction. 
He wore the robe of royalty that Jacob gave to him to signify that Joseph would be the bearer of the birthright. But it was that robe that was taken from him by his brothers and made to appear as if Joseph had been killed by wild animals and presented that robe back to Jacob, which put Jacob into a state of mourning for most of the rest of his life. And he was put then a garment of servitude, a garment of slavery in Egypt. And though God was with him and God protected him and God actually showed him favor, nonetheless, there was a wardrobe malfunction with Potiphar's wife, the adulterous woman who decided that you know, she was going to get Joseph. She held on to his garment and he ran. Therefore, he was garmentless and arrested that way and placed into prison. He would then take on the garment of a prisoner. And that's what we've seen Joseph in until this chapter, which we actually won't get to the next change of wardrobe until later. But nonetheless, again, it brings us back to this issue of perspective. Are we looking at things from our perspective or from man's perspective or from the perspective of flesh or what about from God's perspective? Because again, we would look at life at, at the life of Joseph and say, man, what, what a rough life he's lived. Going through all of those things. Yet if we look at it from God's perspective, we realize God has been with him all along, never left him. In fact, he's used him. In spite of the problems, in spite of the trials, in spite of the near-death experiences he's had. Not just by his brothers. He should have been killed for what he was accused of in Egypt. But instead, he was put into a prison. Thirteen years from pit to prison. But today, he will end up in a palace. We look at verses 1 through 8 to begin with today. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Do you kind of see God's hand in this? I forgot to mention to you that when we look at things from God's perspective, we can see God's hand in everything that takes place in this special life of Joseph. Joseph has been associated now with dreams from the very beginning, hasn't he? The dreams he gave to his brothers, and then when he goes into prison, he has these two guys, a butler and a baker, that come to him and they say, we have dreams, can you interpret them? And he interprets them for these two guys. And so now we find that Pharaoh, after the two years of him being in this prison, Pharaoh has a dream. You see God's hand in it. Okay, that means you're looking at it now from God's perspective. All right, I was just checking. Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. That has to be the river Nile, of course. The most prominent river in in the land of Egypt. And suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat. And they fed in the meadow. And then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, which means they were ugly and thin. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the river, 
And the ugly and the gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. And so Pharaoh awoke. I think I would have awoken up too. (laughs) After that kind of a dream. Makes me wonder if Pharaoh may have gone to Pizza Hut that night. Because, you know, you eat too much pizza and that spicy stuff, man, that makes you dream kind of weird stuff. Well, he slept and he dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Probably wheat. And then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke. And indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh was troubled by this dream. And it brings us back to that thought that we talked about the last couple of weeks. That, you know, dreams in that day and in that culture and in that time were very significant to their religious life. They, they felt, uh, the people of that time felt that these dreams had some, some connection to their future, some connection to what was going to happen in their lives. So they, they, they developed a, a system where they, where, whereby they could have people at their disposal, especially people like pharaohs and kings and all, but they could have people at their disposal at their disposal that could tell them what these dreams meant. Magicians, interpreters of dreams. But of course, if you didn't help the situation and you told something to a, a king or a pharaoh uh, about the dream and it didn't come to pass, you know you might lose your head. So you had to be kind of careful. Because you see, it troubled him. So he calls for the people he depends upon to tell them what this dream may signify. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Now, to some extent, all of these magicians and dreamers of dreams or interpreters of dreams are probably in jeopardy because they don't have an answer. But it was better not to have an answer than to give an answer that wasn't going to come to pass. So everybody now is in fear (laughs) in this particular chapter and at this particular place. All right, we begin with that. With one reason, and this is kind of the tie into what we began with our little introduction earlier. One reason so many people struggle in life, and and that would include believers in Jesus Christ too, is, is that we focus on things so much from our own finite perspective, and disregard God's infinite perspective. Now, now the Word of God is very clear about God's plans toward us. Although it's not so clear about the specifics. I mean, we all want the specifics. We want the details, Lord. But when we go through the Word, I mean, the, the Word is very clear that God has the plan. He doesn't always reveal the specifics until the moment that He wants to give them to us. And since we all have different and distinctive specific issues, it's not, those aren't always clear. But here's the thing. There is a plan. And God's plans are always better than ours. For us. In fact, think about this. Proverbs 16 verse 9, it says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, it's always better to look at this particular verse as coming from this perspective that those who understand this 
do so because they believe in God and they believe God's Word. Which doesn't negate the very fact that most of us make plans. Some of you have actually, some of you have plans right after service. You're going to go and eat. You made plans. You're thinking about it right now. Would you not think about it too much? Because when I see your lips smacking, it makes me wonder what you're thinking about. Alright, so here's the thing. A man's heart plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. Which lets us know that if we bring our plans to the Lord, we are not to bring them so that the Lord will bless our plans as much as the Lord will instill his plans and direct us his way. Because if you're like me, we can come up with plan A and then think that if plan A doesn't work, we're going to come up with plan B. And then we're going to have a plan C just in case plan B doesn't work. Right? As a matter of fact, Proverbs 19 verse 21 says, says there are many plans in a man's heart. Because we're always planning. But, nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And again, as believers, we can bring our plans before the Lord and just say, Lord, this would be wonderful. This would be nice. In fact, you know, we all grow up with plans, right? Maybe when we were five years old, we said, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be this. I want to be that. Later on, you discover that there are many other things in just those areas. Sometimes you hold on to that plan. Sometimes you make others. But we're constantly planning. We're being told to plan. You've got to have a certain financial plan for the rest of your life and your future. And you, you need to have a, a kind of an end-of-a-life plan. You know, come and, and uh, you know, we'll kind of set things up so that if something does happen to you, you know, we'll take care of this. And, you know, so there's all, you know, we're always involved with plans. Yet, the Lord's counsel, that's what stands. Always the Lord's counsel. So these are encouraging us that if we have plans, we bring them to the Lord. No matter what it is. Because His counsel stands, and He will direct our steps. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in Joseph's case, we don't really see him making any plans. I have yet to see that Joseph has made any plan whatsoever in his life, other than the fact that he told his brothers his dreams, and that he asked the butler if he would remember him when he would go back to the Pharaoh's court. But that wasn't much of a plan. That was just a request. He was still a prisoner. We see nothing of him making plans, but what we do see is God's hand of providence and God's sovereign hand in the plans that he has for Joseph. And I love the sovereignty of God. And let me, let me, just, let me just let you know that the sovereignty of God is so, so wonderful and so special. Because what the sovereignty of God is about is that God is indeed in control of all things for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Even those who don't know the Lord sometimes fall into the fact that He uses them in His plans. We see that throughout all of the Scriptures. But simply speaking, His sovereignty is that He is in control of all things. And secondly, He cares about every one of your lives. That's how sovereign God is. 
He controls and He cares. He cares about you. You see, we see God's hand in the plans that He has for Joseph. What we do see is that Joseph, in spite of the difficulty that he's had to face, has trusted his God to accomplish and to fulfill his ministry as the Lord allows it to unfold, all the while appreciating the Lord's presence, whether it was in the pit or whether it was in prison, and in spite of the butler forgetting about Joseph for two years of his life in prison. He served the Lord faithfully. And that because he had a relationship and a fellowship and a communion with God. Because the scripture tells us clearly, God was with Joseph. And the implication was they had communion. What we've seen so far is Joseph serving the Lord faithfully even when things have gone south. Which is just an expression that says things are just going downhill from the human perspective. God's timing, you see, is always perfect to fulfill His perfect plan. I'm going to say that again just in case you want to write it down. God's timing is always perfect to fulfill his perfect plan. Any earlier, and things would not have worked out for Joseph. You see how in control God is? In his perfection, every minute is detailed in God's plan. We may not know it, but that's what's happening. At the appointed time, Pharaoh had his two dreams. Isn't that God's hand? At the very appointed time, where is Joseph? He's not in Hebron. He's not in, he's not in the land of Canaan. He's not out looking for his brothers. This is 13 years later, and he is in prison in Egypt. How did he get there? What a coincidence! Or was it God's plan? Was it God's plan? In the first dream, now, as Pharaoh has it, uh, seven fat cows came out of the Nile and grazed along the banks. The seven skinny, emaciated cows came up and ate the seven fat cows. And after Pharaoh woke up, he went back to sleep and dreamed another dream. And this time, seven thin heads of grain devoured seven plump heads of grain. And once again, Pharaoh woke up. At this point, you know, he would have had to have called his new chief baker and see what he was putting in the meal that evening, you know. But Pharaoh knew that these were not normal dreams. These were not normal dreams. Verse 8, as a matter of fact, tells us that he was troubled because the dreams meant something to him, but he didn't know what. I know that those of you who remember dreams will always say, man, I was having this dream and all of a sudden this is, this is happening and, and then all of a sudden I, I just woke up and I can't remember anymore, you know. We, we, we're, we're, some of us, not all of us, have, have some remembrance of dreams. We all dream, by the way. But you know, some will remember things. And we ponder it and we wonder about it. But I don't think it troubles us. It troubled the Pharaoh. Well, it should have troubled the Pharaoh because it was going to involve the Pharaoh. It was going to involve Egypt. And it was going to involve a world as we know it at that time. What was the whole world uh, under Egypt's 
dominion. The dream meant something. So he called for the magicians and the wise men, who, by the way, as I said earlier, were all involved in some form of occultism. Actually, going all the way back to the Babylonian religious system back in Babel or Babylon. And one thing that they practiced was interpreting dreams. But they had no idea what the two dreams meant either. So let's move on. Let's look at verse 9. And then the chief butler spoke. There the chief butler is. Remember, he's in the court of, of Pharaoh. And he speaks up to Pharaoh and he says, I remember my faults this day. What happened? What did he remember? So he remembered Joseph. Two years later, was that his fault or was it God's timing? Any earlier, it wouldn't have been the right time. But he says, I, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, well, we each had a dream and in one night and he and I and, and each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now there was this young Hebrew man with us there, a, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office and he hanged the other dude, fella. He hanged him. But in essence, he lopped off his head. But... Now, some would consider this luck or coincidence. Well, we, sometimes we don't understand what we're saying. I think a lot of times we just say, oh, you know, I was lucky or good luck to you, you know. I, I don't like the word luck. I don't use it often except one time when I say we're going to have a potluck. If it involves food, I can use it, you know. Other than that, I don't use the word luck because I don't believe in luck. Because there's nothing about luck. Luck is just chance. And what's chance? See, if you believe in chance, then you believe in anything. But if you believe in God, you believe in a God who can control all things. You may not understand all things, but you know a God that does understand all things and controls all things. So some would consider this luck, you know, or coincidence. Finally, he remembers whatever. That the butler remembered Joseph and how he correctly interpreted the bakers and his dreams his dreams two years earlier, but I'm here to tell you it wasn't luck. Because with God there are no coincidences. Remember that. With God there are no coincidences. With God there are no lucky occurrences. This was the plan of God and His timing, and things were now coming to pass. At the exact time it needed to come to pass, at the exact moment that Joseph needed to be where he was. And remember this, no matter what you're going through, God is working and He is aware of your situation. Nothing escapes His eyes. Never think that you are by yourself and if you're in a terrible situation, whether of your own making or not, God is there with you. He said He would be there. You have to take your eyes off of the situation and put them on the Lord. But nothing escapes His eyes. As a matter of fact, here's a reason why nothing escapes his eyes. If you turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, listen to what Jesus said. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Now, what that little question tells us is that, first of all, sparrows did not have very much value at all.
This copper coin that it mentions was one-sixteenth of a denarius coin. One-sixteenth of a denarius. Uh, The interesting thing is a denarius in that time was about a day's wage. But don't think of it in terms of our wages today. Because a day's wage today would make you quite wealthy in comparison. A day's wage, a denarius, was not very much. So can you imagine just a sixteenth of that denarius? And Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? In other words, it's a two-for-one sale in a sense, you know. They're not very valuable sparrows. But notice what he says about them. He says, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Not one of them. As valueless as they may be to our Father, He sees them fall. Which means He cares about even that little sparrow. But then He goes on to say this. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of us, you know, can thank the Lord for that. that we don't have, he doesn't have to count too much. All you shiny guys out there. But everyone is counted because God cares about you. And he knows about you. Then he says, do not fear therefore. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be anxious or to worry about things in this life. Do not fear therefore. You are more value, are of more value than many sparrows. If God cares about the sparrow that falls to the ground, that's not of great value to anyone. I mean, nobody has fried sparrow. You can't eat the meat of the sparrow. It's too small, right? You know, chicken leg about this big, right? You know what I'm saying? Not, not, not very valuable. But to God it is. How much more you created in His image. You who who He loved so much that He sent His only begotten Son for. So let's never forget. Let's never forget that God is working on our behalf even when we are going through the darkest of times. Now we arrive at verse 14 of our text and it says that Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. Do you you see God's hand in this? Do you see God's sovereign hand here now? Are we looking at it from his perspective? They're bringing Joseph before Pharaoh. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Well, you've been a prisoner for two years. You probably needed to do that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what was the Lord doing during those two full years that Joseph was in prison and 
And after he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker, what, what, what was God doing in those two full years? Because we oftentimes, if we looked at it from the wrong perspective, from the human perspective, from the fleshly perspective or man's perspective, those two years, when we think about them in, in Joseph's life, were wasted. Wasted lives. God's not about wasting lives, though, if we know Him. And if He says He's with us, what was He doing in those two full years? I would offer to you that you would see that this is what He was doing. He was working in Joseph so that He could work through Joseph. He was working in Joseph so that He could work through Joseph. God works in us sometimes in the hardest times and the worst times of our lives... He works in us so that later on He could work through us. He was building His character. God was building His character into the very character of His servant Joseph. And just as we are told in the, in the New Testament that we are being built up in the love of Jesus Christ and we are building, being built up in, uh, in the image of Christ, so God was building Joseph up more and more into the image that would represent Christ before the world, especially before Pharaoh. Now, if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul when he says there in Philippians 3, verse 17, first of all, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Speaking of the, of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus, he says, you can follow our example because we are following Christ. If we follow Christ, we are going to follow His example in life, you know. Uh, we're going to take His Word. We're going to take it seriously. We're going to take it so seriously that we want to live out the life of Jesus in the love of God and in the joy that God gives us to, to live our lives in. He says, join me in following my example and note those who so walk as you have a, us for a pattern. There's a reason why he says that. Because in the next verse he says, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now we would immediately think that he's talking about people who are, are opposed to the cross of Christ, who reject the cross of, of Jesus and reject the salvation of Jesus Christ, and reject God and reject God's word. And while that is included in this thought, you also have to realize that he is talking about those who profess to be Christians, but are indeed enemies of the cross. That's very possible. And it happens today. And I'll talk about it in a moment. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their belly. In other words, they, what they, whatever they do, they do only for themselves, and whose glory is in their shame. They glory in the things that they do that are shameful in the presence of God, because, and here's, here's what he sets as, as the precedent, who set their mind on earthly things. They have set their minds on earthly things. 
There are certainly people who don't go to church or, you know, they don't care to know Jesus. They don't want to hear the name. They would rather that all Christians just go away. Well, let me inform them that's going to happen soon. Christians are going to go away because Jesus is coming for them. But here's the thing. They set their mind on earthly things. The word set there has an interesting connotation because it, it has to do with, with something that sets almost permanently. In other words, like, like uh, cement or glue or something of that nature. Uh, they set their mind on it and, and then all of a sudden just you know, become cemented to it. That's why John says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. They set their mind on earthly things. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship, the contrast to that kind of living, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, once we came to Jesus Christ, once we received the gospel of Jesus and received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, once we accepted the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we became citizens of heaven. Some of us may have American passports or U.S. passports, or some of us might even have Mexican passports. I know some people that have both, because they're dual citizens. But here's the thing, all of those passports mean nothing when it comes to eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are waiting from heaven the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be what is said in our hearts and in our minds. And because of that, that's why we live and follow the example of Christ and those who follow the example of Jesus as well. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, and if you get anything, get this from this passage, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working. If you underline anything in this verse, underline the word, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. God is working in your life and in mine. He's working daily in us that we, that He will work through us. He works in us that He could work through us. But one thing that we have to remember, as much as the Lord is working in us, the enemy also is working to deceive us. And he's very good at this. In fact, Paul warns us of this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. He says, For such are apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. I get so frustrated sometimes when I turn on the TV and I watch people that are, you know, claiming to be apostles or, you know, evangelists and, and preaching messages that involve just the, uh, you know, the prosperity thing of, uh, you know, having everything and you can have it all. But they're, you know, they just want you to have it all so they can get half of it from you. If they get half of it from everybody, then they become pretty pretty uh, wealthy themselves. Scandalous though, as it is. They use the name of Jesus. 
They sometimes carry Bibles. I hardly ever see some of them open the Bible. If they do, they always open it to the same passages and disregard all the ones that they should be watching and looking at anyway. And their God becomes their belly because all they are doing is trying to get off from others what will bless them. So he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. They've got, they've got to come into them, because it's according to their works. Yes, God is working in us. God is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. But I want you to be aware of one thing. Satan has his false prophets who are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing trying to deceive the sheep and, 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 and really essentially wanting to destroy them. So how are we then to know these false prophets? How are we to know them? Well, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 7. I think you know by now we're not going to finish this chapter. You all know that, right? 57 verses. I mean, it's going to take us a while, so... Uh, we're just taking it easy. We'll let our ladies get back from retreat and they can join us at that point. So not to worry. I just want to take time to focus on some of these issues. Look at Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets. Now these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking. This is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, early on in this chapter, if you look up at the beginning of this chapter, you read that one verse that everybody in the world knows, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? Do you see that? Is that there? Is that in verse 1? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Everybody knows that. It's amazing how many unbelievers really, if they quote any scripture at all, they quote that one. uh, Matthew 7.1 Judge not, lest ye be judged. But see, what Jesus was talking about there was, look, don't, don't put a standard out that people can't, that even you can't uh, uh, measure up to. And then don't judge them because they don't measure up to it either. Uh, look carefully at that passage. See? But, but, but then later on he says, but there is something that you can judge. And that's what he's saying here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You see, if you judge anything, you judge the fruit of people who say that they're sheep, or who say that they're shepherds, or who say that they're apostles, or who say that they're a bishop this, or the most high reverend that, or whatever. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Of course, the answer is no. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The analogy here is very clear. That those who are false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, and even false Christs, will be judged for their deception. But then he says, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Twice he says it, so therefore that's very, very important. You shall know them by their fruits. That you can judge. And it will be what you will be judged by as well. 
Because you see, what is born from their lives, these false people, what is born from their lives, in other words, what their lives produce and what they identify with, tell you if they're of God or not. But that applies to us as well. What is produced in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ and what we identify with in this life will tell others whether we're of God or not. If we only go to church, uh, you know, and, 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 and you know, we really struggle with, boy, we're here an hour and a half. Man, I'll go to that other church because they only meet for an hour. What does that tell you? But then the rest of the week you're identifying in the world, you're identifying with one thing or another that belongs to the world, and, 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 you're, and you, you put the Bible aside, you only open it maybe when you go to church, whatever. And, and there nowadays, there are some churches you go to, they don't even let you open the Bible. They don't want to open the Bible. <laughs> they just want to be friendly and nice and let's be kind to everybody and let's, you know, let's talk about this and let's talk about that and then let's have a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, whatever. Well, I, coffee's great, I love coffee, but I, you know. I, you don't see me going out and serving you a, piece, a cup of coffee right now because we're studying the Word of God, of course. So, I mean, they're just, what's going on here? What are we identifying with? Because it tells us whether we're of God or not. Is their fruit good? Is it based in and on the Word of God? If it isn't based on the Word of God, then they're in error and we're not, listen, we're not to listen to them. Although it may be in the extreme, even though for some it isn't, I want you to consider what we're told in Isaiah 8, verses 19 and 20. This is very important here as well. And you'll see the tie in just a minute. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, stop there for just a moment. There are those people who are saying, listen, you don't need to just look at the Bible and the Word of God or what Jesus said. Because there's all kinds of answers. There's all, many, all kinds of roads that lead to God. Have you ever heard that? All roads lead to God? That's a lie. There's only one road that leads to God. Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Only one road to God. But there are those who will say, well, listen, look at it a different way. Now, back in those days, in Isaiah's time, there were those who sought after mediums and wizards. Uh, wizards and, and, and who whisper and mutter, and, and, and they were leading astray the children of, of Israel. They were leading astray the people that were to know the word of God. They said, when they say to you, seek those who, mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, then you notice it says, should not a people seek their God? Shouldn't you as a believer in Jesus Christ seek Jesus and Him alone and His word? And then it, and then it goes on to say, should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? And that, of course, goes to all the people who, you know, have lost someone, and they say, well, you know, I need to, oh, I need to, I need to speak to myself, you know, my grandfather or grandmother or whatever. I, I, just, I just need, you know, so they'll call up on something that's, that's occultic to do that. And he says, should, should we seek the dead on behalf of the living? By the way, think about this also. If you don't know the Lord, you're dead already. So why seek people who are dead? Because they're not in Christ. Seek the Lord. Now, I love the next verse. It says, to the law and to the testimony. I love that. That's just like if somebody says, listen to what the Word of God says. To the law. If somebody says something, go to the law. In other words, go to the Word of God. Go to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Go to the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this Word, 
it is because there is no light in them. So let's stay aware. Let's stay diligent. Let's stay vigilant. All right, we've got to get back to Joseph here. So now we're told in our text that Joseph could not come before Pharaoh without getting cleaned up and shaved. And you'd expect, you know, a prisoner of his time to certainly be disheveled and unkempt, you know, scruffy and stinky to say the least. I mean, two years in a prison? Wow. So they cleaned him up. But actually in those days, the Egyptian men did not wear beards and hair like the, you know, have the, like the Hebrews did. They liked beards and long hair and, you know, the, the Egyptians were very clean. They, they, they shaved all their hair, you know. Remember Yul Brynner, Ten Commandments kind of thing. Well, it was especially done by the royal family, Pharaoh and his royalty, because they were considered gods after all. But it's interesting that Joseph now for the third time in 13 years would be preparing to change his garments once again. His wardrobe is going to change again. Soon to be wearing the garment of a ruler in Egypt. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So if you will look at verses 15 and 16. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can, that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, I want you to notice very clearly what Joseph says. It is not in me. In other words, it's not me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh the answer of peace. God, my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my God, the God of the Hebrew children, my God, will give you, Pharaoh, an answer of peace. In other words, an answer that will comfort you from your dream. I want you to take notice that once again, Joseph points people to the Lord, and this time, even Pharaoh. He could have taken the glory. Joseph could have taken the glory like some people like to take the glory for the things that God does. And Pharaoh was ready to give it to him. But instead he gave the glory to God. He gave the glory to his God. Not Pharaoh's God or any other Egyptian God. God alone can interpret dreams simply because he's the one in this particular case who gives them. God gave the dreams to Joseph. God even gave the dreams to the butler and the baker so that Joseph could interpret them and set him up ready to be the interpreter of dreams for Pharaoh. But God is the one who has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And Joseph knew that. It's not in me. I'm just flesh. But my God will answer you. 
And I'll tell you what God says. Now, the issue between false prophets, what we were talking about earlier, and dreams is a significant connection in our study because of a law that would be stated many years later by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I I want you to go there. Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 4. Because it's there that it's, it says there, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, or an interpreter of dreams, as it were, but a dreamer of dreams, as they were called, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, something happens from the interpretation or from the prophecy given. In other words, this prophet, for a change, says something that actually comes to pass. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let's go after other gods. In other words, it really wasn't through the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac or Jacob. It wasn't the one true God. It it, it was saying, let's go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. In other words, I, I just want you to know that there's another way of getting what you want or what you need. It's, it's not really just what Jesus said. It, again, it's coming back to the way of the world today in the, infiltrating the church and saying, listen, we, we need to open ourselves up to other ways of, of, of seeing God's blessings. But it's not really just Jesus or His Word and whatnot. Then it says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God is testing us. God is allowing this to try our hearts as to whether we love Him or not. As to whether we are going to follow what His Word says in all things or begin to lean in the direction of other, of other ways or other gods. And he goes on and he says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. In other words, you walk after God and fear Him and keep His Word. Keep His Word. The Word of God. If you understand the fullness of of what the Word of God is, it is God's commandments, it is His statutes, it it is His laws. And there's a number of other words that can be applied, but nonetheless it is still all God's Word. God gave a word in the garden. What was that word? One commandment given to Adam and Eve. What was it? Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, thereof you shall surely die. One commandment. And they broke it. In the garden there was the word of God. And the word was. Eat of all the rest of the garden. To your heart's delight. But of this one tree do not. Testing to see whether you love God. And you serve him with all your heart. Moses warned the people that the standard for truth, and this is what I want you to get here, 
Moses warned the people that the standard for truth must never be a miraculous sign or wonder. That is not the standard for truth. Or any other area of human experience. The standard of truth is always the Word of God. The standard for truth is always the Word of God. Paul talked about the fact that in the last days there will be lying signs and wonders that will be done and allowed. We've had people down through the ages, predictors, prophets as they call them, Nostradamus, Gene Dixon. I don't know why people trusted Gene Dixon. She came out every year in National Enquirer. What a terrible magazine. But there she was on the cover right, right around the new year to say, you know, these are the predictions for the coming year. And most of the time she was wrong. Sometimes she got some things right. She was terrible. If it was in the days of Moses, man, they'd stone her. And Nostradamus too. Because the prophet was never to give a false prophecy because all prophecy was to come through God. You had to be 100% accurate in all of your prophecies. Well, they weren't, but they made millions of dollars. Well, not Nostradamus, but Gene Dixon made a good amount of money. The standard of truth is always the Word of God. Not signs and wonders, folks. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but not signs and wonders. The Word of God. That's the standard for truth. A prophet or, or a dreamer's prediction may, may come true, but if his message contradicted God's commands, the people were to trust God and His Word rather than their experience of a miracle. If human experience seems to contradict God's clear teachings, the children of Israel were to bow in submission to God's commands simply because His Word is truth. They were simply to bow to God's commands because it was truth. What did Jesus say before he went to the cross? In his high, high priestly prayer of, of John seventeen seventeen, he said, Sanctify them, the disciples, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus praying to the Father. He says, Your word is truth. When given the opportunity to glorify himself, Joseph refused. This is the difference between Joseph and all of the magicians and the wise men and the dreamer of dreams. He would not take the glory for himself. Instead, he took the opportunity to glorify God and God alone. We would all do well to give the Lord the glory for everything, both in the good and in the challenges and in the struggles and in the low places that we might find ourselves in. When you are struggling, are you giving God the glory that eventually He's going to give you what needs to be given to you to bring you out of that struggle or trial? Are you giving God the glory? We don't normally do that, see, because we focus on the human perspective. We're in trouble. But if I am in a position where I seem to be in trouble, but I know God is with me, then who's in trouble? Not me. God said, I'll be with you. And I'll get you through this storm. I'll get you through this trial. I'll get you through this fire. I'll get you through this flood. I'll bring you through. 
If the Lord has allowed something to happen in our lives, even through no fault of our own, then it is indeed going to turn out for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His name. That's Romans 8.28. And we'll hear that a lot in these last chapters of the book of Genesis because we see it in the life of Joseph. For we know that God, for we know that God works all things for good. He works in us so that He can work through us because He works all things for good to those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose, His plan, what He has set for us. I want to leave you with two passages of Scripture very quickly here. Galatians 6, verses 13 and 14. It's about who we give glory to. First of all, Paul says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Some people just like to glory in the flesh. This is talking about the Judaizers in Paul's time who were who are telling people in the church, listen, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to be a, a good Jew first. No, that's, that's not what the Scriptures teaches. But I, I brought this up just to bring this next verse up. But God forbid that I should boast, which means the the word glory and boast are the same word here. But God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, what is that saying? You're boasting in something that you had nothing to do with. You see? You're boasting in the one who died for our sins. You're boasting in the one who shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. You're boasting in the one who three days later would rise from the dead on our behalf. Because we have nothing good in us that we can boast in. And I love what Paul says. If I should boast in anything, I will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I've been crucified to the world. I I don't love the world anymore. I'm a citizen of heaven. And then I'll leave you with Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. The psalmist says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Look at verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. It sounds like Joseph's life. Joseph was in trouble all the time. Wasn't he? I mean, you know, from, our, from the human perspective, he was in trouble all the time. Man, this guy just wasn't getting it right. From God's perspective, he was just right. But that relationship that Joseph had with God, because God was with Joseph, that relationship, he was calling on the Lord in his time of trouble. And he says, I will deliver you. The butler didn't deliver him. God delivered him. And let me say one other thing. You know all those people that put advertisements and say, we deliver? Don't believe it. Only God delivers. And He delivers good. But then, see, after 
all of that, he says, and you shall glorify me. Because he alone is worthy of our glory. He alone is worthy of all praise. He alone is worthy of all worship. Because he has delivered us. And Joseph knew his hand, God's hand, was on him. Let's pray.